Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Well, good morning once again. Uh, at this point, it's our tradition to go around and introduce ourselves, uh, and then uh, at the end, I introduce our speaker for the day. Uh, I suggest that we do this uh, deliberately. Uh, take a little pause before saying your name. My name is Oswaldo. I'm George. I'm David. I'm Brad. I'm Jack. My name is Cass. Amos. I'm Steve. I'm Fat. My name is Jerry. I'm AJ. My name is Tom. I'm David. My name is Nick. My name is Roy. Don. Mike. John. I'm Carl. Francisco. Angela. I'm Mark. My name is Michael. My name is Mike. <laughs> Jeff. Jim. Peter. I'm Hal. I'm Flint. My name is Donald. Philip. Donald. My name is Lee. Okay, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Frank Ostraseski, who is a Buddhist teacher, international lecturer, and a leading voice in contemplative of light care. In 1987, he co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, the first Buddhist hospice in America. In 2004, he created the Meta Institute to provide innovative educational programs and professional trainings that foster compassionate, mindfulness-based care. His groundbreaking work has been widely featured in the media and in numerous print publications. So, welcome, Frank. Thank you. Um, I never quite know what to do after all those words. I, I think of myself just as somebody who's uh, trying to find his way through the twists and turns of this human life, who regularly trips and falls, gets completely lost. But maybe like you, I, uh, something inspired me, oriented me toward a pursuit of truth. And so uh, it's that that I'm always, uh, always trying to uh, keep discovering, even when I'm teaching. So this morning I can't begin unless we include uh, Paris, um, this beautiful city of love and light. And so many of us have spend time there, I have friends there, I live there, and so my heart is uh, broken, really broken this morning. It's impossible to include, in a way. For me, it's impossible right now. Uh, impossible uh, for me to include the grief and the anger, the rage that emerges in my heart, you know, it's torn apart, and my, how my mind gets lost in disbelief and confusion, how fear and rejection ripple through my body. And, uh, and so the only thing I know how to do is to um, turn toward my experience. And to do that I have to first cultivate some supportive conditions that help me to turn toward my experience because it's almost impossible to be with my experience. So I have to remind myself, I have to cultivate you know, some quality of strength, of heart, and compassion, of equanimity. And one of the things that I've been um, thinking about, almost writing about yesterday, was courage. And um, so I thought we might explore this this morning a little bit. Um, f for me, just to say, courage is the willingness to move toward complete openness. That's what I would, I would say. And um, I want to talk about a couple of levels of this courage that I 
can see in my life and in the world. And the first of those might be we might call the courage of the warrior. You know, that this is the courage that we see in the military, that we see in healthcare, that we were raised on as kids coming from schools. You know, it's the courage that says we should overcome our fear. We shouldn't feel our fear. We should overcome our fear. And, um, you know, uh, this courage has a kind of false invulnerability to it. It's, it's based on a lie. Uh, it's based on sometimes camaraderie or a belief system that has me so aligning with that belief that I don't really acknowledge what's happening for me. Uh, now, at the same time, in this practice that we're doing, this ferocious, fierce practice of love and that we're doing, requires a certain kind of uh, strength. Otherwise, when the going gets rough, we will turn back, we will, we will quit. So there's some kind of stability and strength that's required to turn toward what life challenges us or has us meet, to turn toward dying, to turn toward horror like we've seen in the last few days and this so this courage this willingness to stay with something this is a beginning place in practice this is important I think but it's a beginning and um, <coughs> it can be supported in a healthy way by our um, love of the practice of our uh, deep love of truth uh, sometimes it's inspired by sangha by teachers When I was coming up in, in Buddhist practice, there was a lot of this kind of warrior energy that was encouraged. You know, all my teachers were, first of all, they were all men. They were all straight men. They were all, you know, pushing that experience. And so I had a lot of striving in my practice, which resulted in, in a lot of confusion and pain in my body, actually. And um, there were all these images of, you know, battlefields. And, you know, 10,000, army of 10,000 on one side, another army of 10,000 to the south and to the north, and all these kinds of things. And these images never really worked for me. And they didn't work for a lot of the people that I, in turn, worked with, people who lived on the margins of society or who had tremendous pain and trauma in their lives, uh, people whose hearts were uh, closed. Um, so... Um, in, in these cases where people already had a certain amount of self-loathing and self-judgment, they just these these images just created more rejection. And still, I heartily believe that there is a need for strength in our practice to turn toward what we would otherwise like to run away from. Uh, my friend uh, Jack Cornfield, I was just saw him the other day. We were talking and. He has a beautiful way of talking about this. He said, true Dharma practice, true Buddha practice is revolutionary. I like this way of talking about it. He said, you can't do it in a comfortable way. You really have to challenge the whole identity. Um, the whole identity of your life. But the strength that's asked for is not really the strength of eliminating all the impurities of body, mind, and heart. But rather the um, strength that's needed is the courage of heart to remain undefended and open. Um, the willingness to touch the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows with some level of tenderness and compassion. This is another way to experience courage. It's a different kind of fearlessness which takes just as much passion and, um, and uh, fire. So, um, so there's this other level of courage that, that, that's there. There's this courage of the warrior, but then there's this, what I just want to call courage of heart. And it's the courage of heart is the strength that... that the way I experience it is something like there's this warrior courage that we, could, we talked about for a moment. And it's in the belly, this, this kind of courage. And then it comes up. It moves up into the heart. And then there's this feeling of expansiveness that often emerges in the heart. Of a willingness to meet whatever is in front of me. It's a certain kind of fearlessness 
Um, it's a non-rejection. It's a total allowing of whatever comes. I, I call it just fearless receptivity. Willingness to meet, not enjoy, not like, not approve of everything that arises, but the willingness to meet whatever arises. The willingness to face my doubt and my confusion, my ugliness, my inability to understand, but to meet all of that with some degree of receptivity. Um, and this, this strength um, emerges into the heart and becomes, gets expressed as compassion in the heart. And um, it has a, this compassion is not some just warm-heartedness. It's fierce. It's the absolute fierceness that allows us to go toward suffering. Suffering that we want nothing to do with. Like what's happened in the last few days. Jack and I were having dinner and he was sharing with me an old story you know, in the old days, maybe some of you we used to go up to the Mendes, you know, men's gatherings that used to happen up in the woods. You know, Blythe was the beginning of them, and Michael Mead came in on them, and all oh, lots of friends that were there. Jack used to be part of them, and at some joint juncture, they they realized they were pretty much all white, and so they started working on diversity a little bit, inclusivity. And so Michael, um, Luis Rodriguez came on, and Meladoma Somme, and beautiful teachers, and, and Michael uh, Mead, wonderful mythologist, you know, he he started bringing gang kids from East L.A., Compton. Tough. And Jack brought in a whole bunch of uh, young vets from the first Iraqi war. Yeah. Young kids, 22, 23 years old. And so you have to imagine this, uh, this big kind of log Hall, you know, some old camp in the woods. And this one night, they, they, they're having this kind of circle. And you have to imagine this, this place in the woods all lit with candles all around the edges of it. And, uh, and all these men, you know, a couple hundred men maybe. And what happens is somebody comes into the center of the circle to speak. Nobody wants to. Somebody eventually does. And the first one into the circle was this kid, 16, 17 years old, from Compton. And he starts to share a story about how he's walking home from through his neighborhood with a friend of his, a buddy of his, a homie. And uh, they're just walking down the street, and this car starts rolling up, and the windows come down, the guns come out, and the blasting starts happening. And he ducks behind a dumpster, you know, Shots are fired. It's wild. And his friend uh, is killed. And he stays behind the dumpster. And he, he's telling this story to this group of people, and he's just weeping, you know. He said, I should have protected him. I should have been with him. I should have taken care of him. And no one knows what to say. And then this elder, 22-year-old, Iraqi vet, steps out. You know, and he said, you did the right thing. You didn't leave. You didn't leave him. You stayed there. You couldn't. You had to keep yourself safe, but you didn't leave him. And when, when it was safe, you pulled him to safety. And you called for help. And, uh, you know, these young gang kids, they adore these, you know, pumped up, gorgeous, you know, young vets, right? And he said, oh, he said, you won't understand. He said, maybe, he said, you don't know what it's like. He said to this young kid, he tries to tell this story about how he's on patrol in, in Baghdad. And he's, they're charged with protecting this one area. Right? Five people, five guys. And out of, uh, uh, so in the side street comes this big mob of people, 100, 
150 people. Swelling, you know, bigger group of people. And he's, he's the guy, right? He's the one that has to stop them. And so he's yelling, and Iraqi to disperse, and some people are getting it, and they're dispersing. And finally, most everybody's dispersed except one old man. One old man. And, and this one old man is coming toward him, and he's yelling at him, stop, stop, you know, and he, he's yelling in his rack, and he's yelling in English, and everything he can think to do, and the man doesn't stop. And he's been trained, and he, maybe this man has a, has a suicide bomber, maybe he has a vest full of explosive. He stops, stop, man doesn't stop. And so he takes his rifle out and he shoots him. He kills him. And the crowd goes wild. The crowd goes crazy. This old man was completely deaf. Mm. He couldn't hear anything. Mm. So there these 16-year-old and this 22-year-old sitting in a circle of men, you know. No one knows what to do. Jack said he didn't have a clue what to do. And Michael Mead, great mythologist and character that he is, you know, he, he just started beating on his drum, you know. And this wasn't about just hugging trees. And he just started beating on his drum. And uh, people turned their attention to him. And he starts to tell this story. And it's the story of this old Irish warrior, you know, wild, crazy man, you know. And uh, news comes that marauders are coming to his village. And so he mounts up on his horse and paints his face blue or whatever they did in those days and, and rides out with all this man to fight this battle. Warrior, warrior, courage. Warrior, courage. And he fights this battle, and he's a great warrior, and so Michael's beating at his drum, and there's all these men are in this thing, and there's these two guys still in the center of the circle, and Michael's telling this story about this old Irish warrior, and, and he says how this man, you know, is, defeats the entire enemy with his band of soldiers. And, but he's so caught in the rage and the wildness of this, that he can't stop it. His mind and his whole being is swept away with his rage. And so he turns on his own village and heads back to his own village, now ready to slaughter everybody in his own village. <coughs> Michael's telling this story in this room. You know? <coughs> and the word comes that he's headed back and he's ferocious and he's going to slaughter the village. And so they go to the elders of the village, women. What should we do? And the women say, well, get big, big, big barrel of water. Get a big thing of water and ropes. Get some ropes. And, uh, and she, she all the, the old elders order all the women to the front of the village. And he, and he tells them, they tell the women to all be bare-breasted at the front of the village. And the warrior comes back and he sees this you know, hundred women from the village all bare-breasted. And it stops him and shocks him, you know. It's not the sexuality of it, it's the mothering of it. And they grab him, and they tie him in ropes, and they immerse him in water. They keep him in the water until he cools down. <clears throat> and they sing him songs from his childhood. Songs he remembered way back when until this anger can be cooled, until this fury and rage can be somehow homeostasis can be found again. Michael's telling the story. And then there are these two men in the center of the circle. And suddenly the whole room starts to sink. Hundred to two hundred men that are in the room start to sing to these two young men, and they sing them back into themselves. Courage of heart. Courage of heart. 
takes courage, compassion, and commitment to stay present for what's true. I didn't want to yesterday. I saw my neighbor, she said, oh, I just turned off the news, I don't want to watch the news. And I said, you have to watch the news. You have to watch the news because you have to be willing to see the suffering, but also, if you don't, you won't see the compassion that emerges in the midst of that suffering. You won't see people opening their doors to take others in. You won't see cab drivers giving free rides. You won't see people standing around a fountain saying, we will not run away in fear. So we need this courage, this steadfast openness to the process of what's unfolding in front of us without prejudice, without um, preference for what truth arises. That's the courage that's needed to see the truth. It isn't that we just open to the truth that we like. It's that we open to truth however it is. You know, if the practice was easy, we wouldn't develop very much. So as our heart gets more established in this courage, in this compassion, in this commitment, other levels of truth reveal themselves to us. Um, things that, just things, aspects of ourselves that we weren't able to see before. And for me, this is, this speaks to another level of courage. And for me, it's the courage of vulnerability. And that's not usually connected. We don't usually connect those two words, courage and vulnerability, but I think they're essential to connect. Courage of vulnerability is a deep dive. Um, that carries with it this certain strength and also this courage of heart that we spoke of, but it's a deeper dive into the unknown into the deeper dimensions of our being. It, it requires, or engenders, a certain dropping of our defenses, <laughs> all defenses. And it's only there, in that process, that we discover uh, harmlessness. They don't just mean art, or um, not harming others. I mean, it's only there that we discover that aspect of ourselves that's beyond harm. When compassion is present, I think the last time I was here, I maybe even spoke about this. We think of compassion as the movement to relieve, relieve suffering. And, and it is that. But there's another aspect to it, and that is just the, the... It gives us the strength, the capacity to bear with suffering. To be with what we would otherwise like to run away from. And the, the way in which it works in some way is that compassion snuggles up close to pain, it snuggles up close to, to, to suffering. And because of its presence, our defenses can drop away. They, they wouldn't drop away otherwise. They, it's too scary, you know. We need the support of compassion for our defenses to drop away. And then when the defenses drop away, when they fall down around us, then we can see what's actually true. And then we can address the causes and conditions that lead to that suffering. So one of the exquisite capacities of compassion is that it helps us to become to defenselessness. When we're no longer defended against anything. 
And some years ago, a few years ago now, I had a very bad heart attack. I was teaching a retreat for uncompassion <laughs> for docs and nurses, and I had a serious heart attack, and it led to triple bypass surgery and urgency and all kinds of things that were difficult. <laughs> and a long recovery period. And um, then another heart attack in the middle of that recovery period. And so more time. And, and in it, I felt really helpless. I never felt such objective helplessness as I did during that time. And dependency and weakness and all the things that are part of that experience. But as I stayed with it, as I stayed with that, def that, that uh, dependency and weakness, something more, something changed. And it became more about transparency. It became more about porousness. The only thing I remember from high school biology <laughs> is the teaching on osmosis. It's the only thing I remember from that all those years ago. How you know how things go across cell membrane with little or no effort. Well, that stuck with me. Courage of vulnerability is a little bit like that. There's no defense. There's no shielding against what's coming in. Everything's received. And, the, and the, this quality of vulnerability, it's, it's a particularly human quality. I don't know if it exists in other species, but it sure exists in humans. And the vulnerability is, what's, what's exquisite about it, is that all of life can impress itself on us, on our consciousness, on our soul. That means that all of the sublime beauty of life can impress itself on us because there's no resistance to it. And all of the horror can impress itself on us because there's no resistance to it. Paradoxically, the door to this vulnerability, to this compassionate heart, to this receptivity, to this non-defensiveness. This is the doorway to invulnerability. This is what takes us past the well-constructed identities that we've crafted. To, to mature in this life, we need courage. We need courage to separate from the familiar patterns of our life. Otherwise, we won't do it. <clears throat> and when we're children, we need objective permanence. We need to know someone will be there for us. We didn't have that, a lot of us, but we had enough of it that we're still alive. That permanence is something a child needs. But as we mature, as we become adults, we move less, we're less interested in, less frightened of impermanence, we're less needy of permanence, and we're more, we're more inclined toward authenticity, toward authenticity. We want to see what's true. When there's fear, the quality that's needed is fearlessness. It doesn't mean that there's no fear. It means that fear isn't the only thing in the room. When you're afraid, don't you know that you're afraid? Don't you know, isn't there some part of you that knows you're afraid? Right, well that part's not afraid. We can orient to that, or we can orient toward the fear. Simply said. A few years ago, there was a beautiful article in the New Yorker about the second war in Iraq, the current war in Iraq. And it was um, the story of a Lieutenant Chris Hughes, was his name. And this um, the, the reporter who was writing this story had been watching on, on video uh, an unfolding of a crisis that was going on 
that day in Iraq. In those days, the, remember, journalists were embedded with the troops that were moving through, and so they were taking live video of what was going on. So it's a beautiful article, uh, ran in the New Yorker some years ago, and, and I want to share some of it with you. He says, on the morning of April 3rd, the army and the Marines were closing in on Baghdad. I happened to look up at what appeared to be a disaster in the making. A small unit of American soldiers were walking along the street of Najib when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side of them. You can imagine being in this kind of situation. The first... Um, they were, they were yelling and screaming and waving their fists. You can watch this video, actually. I've seen it. And what you have is the cameraman looking. In front of him are these six or eight soldiers. And then this crowd, massive crowd, hundreds of Iraqis coming at them. And beyond the mass, this massive crowd, this beautiful gold uh, turret that's the, stop, the, the top of the mosque. And these soldiers were there to actually help find a particular um, Muslim leader. But the Iraqis thought that they were coming to destroy their mosque. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's almost biblical when you look at this, this video. So the, the writer goes on and he says, um, Fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans who glanced at each other in terror. And I reached for the remote to turn up the sound. The Iraqis were shrieking, frantic with rage. And from the way the lens was lurching, the cameraman also seemed as frightened as the soldiers. This is it, I thought. A shot will come from somewhere. The Americans will open fire. And the world will witness the Milai massacre of the Iraqi war. And at that moment, an American officer stepped forward. He stepped through the crowd and holding his rifle over his head, he pointed the barrel toward the ground. And the writer says, against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. And then he ordered, he said to all his men, take a knee. And the soldiers looked back at him as if he were crazy. And then one by one, swaying in their bulky body armor, and their helmets and their rifles, they knelt before this boiling crowd of Iraqis. And they all took their guns and they pointed them at the ground. And this young Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes said, smile. And the Iraqis saw these men kneeling and they withdrew. He said, it took two months for me to track down Lieutenant Colonel Hughes, who by then had rotated home. I wanted to know who had taught him to tame a crowd by pointing their rifle muzzle down at the ground and having their men kneel, having his men kneel. Were these gestures particular to Iraq, to Islam? My questions barely made any sense to Hughes. In an unassuming, persistent Iowa tone, he assured me that nobody had prepared him for an angry mob in an Arab country, much less, much less the, the tribal complexities of Najib. He said army officers learn in a general way to use helicopter uh, motor wash uh, to drive away a crowd, he explained. Or they fire warning shots into the air. The problem with that, he said, is the next thing you have to do is shoot someone in the chest. Hughes had been trying all that day to get in touch with the Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani, a delicate task that the army considered politically crucial. 
American gunfire would have made that impossible. The Iraqis already felt that the Americans were disrespecting their mosque. The obvious solution to Hughes was a gesture of respect. Isn't that beautiful? Years ago, I was... Years ago, I was teaching uh, in Kansas City somewhere to a huge conference of doctors. And uh, the doctors were trying uh, to get family members to take care of their loved ones, to become more active in taking care of their loved ones. But the family members weren't picking up the slack. They weren't going along with this. And part of this was because the medical system was, you know, um, running out of money had budget problems. And they wanted the families to pick up some of the slack. And so they said to me, what should we do? What should we do? These family members just don't cooperate. And it was an audience of about 1,500 doctors. And I said, apologize. Apologize. Tell them that for the last 50 years, you've been taking away their rights to be with their families and their loved ones. And that that was a mistake. Yesterday when I heard, we will fight with unmerciful action. We will take unmerciful action to find the perpetrators of this horrible, horrible incidents in Paris. I thought, oh my, war will continue. Somebody will be shot. And then it will go on. We need a bold openness in this practice of ours. Really a bold openness. It's not about just sitting quietly and sweetly. It's bold. This practice cannot be done in a comfortable way. And this integrity that's required, this boldness that's required, this courage that's required, they, they depend on us being extremely honest, completely sincere, being willing to confront whatever experience emerges in us. Being sincere means not lying. It means not rationalizing. It means not postponing or not bandaging our difficulties. Without this boldness, without this courage, we will tend to stay with what we already know. With what we already believe. That's all I could think of yesterday was how beliefs were splitting the world apart. We will stay with what we believe. We'll say, yes, I'm open, but I'm hoping this experience will confirm the one I already know. So to go beyond the familiar story, to go beyond what we think of as reality, we need courage that's based on openness an openness that will allow new forms to appear, new insights. If the invitation is limited, the revelation will be limited. So to stay with our experience without manipulating it. It means to be objective about what's here. In true objectivity, true equanimity, doesn't mean that you're unfeeling, doesn't mean that you're distant. It means rather that you are so motivated, so hungry, so committed to knowing the truth that you'll stay present. Loving the truth for its own sake. I, I talk about sometimes, you know, if there's a mountain lake that you really love, you know, in the Sierra, you like to hike, you know, maybe 
you know this particular lake and you make the journey to this lake because you love it and you know at the end there will be great swimming to be had, you know. And it's really important that you love the lake, otherwise you won't start out on the journey. But it's not enough to love the lake. You have to love the hike. You have to love the journey. Otherwise, when the mosquitoes come out, you will turn back. You know? <clears throat> so it's not enough just to love that state that we hope to achieve or claim, but to love the whole thing, all of it, every aspect of it. Even that which we don't like and approve of, even that which we, want, we don't want to open to, to love that. All kinds of things will appear on the way and we will want to turn away. And that will happen for some days, weeks, even years. But then we turn back. It's the courage to feel completely everything. We may tremble, but we will not give up. I saw these students last night in front of a fountain saying, they said, we are not afraid. But I don't think that was true. I was afraid. But I'm willing to be afraid. <coughs> so, that's enough words. <laughs> courage of the warrior, the courage of heart, and the courage of vulnerability. You know, when I, the story of Lieutenant Hughes, he had all three of those. I mean, he had this warrior stuff, he was trained, he knew all that, but also he had a courage of heart, you know, he had the love of his men and the love even of the people in front of him. And then he had the courage to be unbelievably vulnerable. That was true courage, really shown all the way through his actions. Okay, I'll stop there. And we'll see if you have any thoughts or questions or comments or disagreements or you know just we could just ask ourselves the question what's a way that we um, try to avoid feeling fear you know what are all the strategies we have about avoiding feeling fear and what's the experience like when there's courage what's it actually like you know what's our direct experience of it not our ideas about What's our direct experience? So those are questions we might play with. Clint, you have something? Yeah, I do. You brought back a powerful letter from your very group about it. But it was in the 80s, and it's when the AIDS crisis was in full flare before they had the medicines to keep it in check. Yeah. And people all around me were dying, and I just got so sick at heart about that that I had to ask remove myself from the whole gay community and all the death and disease. Yeah. So I got involved with the men's movement. Yeah. And I went to one of those Robert Fly retreats in yeah. the early ones. And it was Michael Mead and he was drumming and yeah. uh, you know Robert Bly was talking about Iron John and so on. Yeah. And um, men were standing up and talking about, you know, their uh, relationships with their wives and with their girlfriends and with their children and how some of these relationships were, were powerful and hands and some of the relationships with these women were very uh, frustrating. Not a single thing about gays. Yeah. When you talk about how there's no, it was all white, it was, it was also all straight. White, straight guys, yeah. So I, I, you know, I mean, I was so full of despair, even when I, when I went up there, and I just got sunk deeper and deeper into the blackness. Yeah. I thought, I have to say something. So I stood up, and, and I just said, you know, just, just what I'm saying now, I'm saying, uh, um, I don't feel welcome here. Yeah, good for you. Um, I, I, I don't feel like this is this is my place. Yeah. And uh, as a gay man and so on, I just went on with Robert. And, um, and, you know, Robert was all taken aback. I, mean, I don't know how he would handle it. Um, and, um, but the interesting thing was other people started talking too. They started, yeah. One person talked about how they had a brother who, who was, had AIDS and another person talked about he had some bisexual experiences and so on, mm -hmm. and it just um, it was a very powerful moment to see how people, once 
it was almost like now they have permission to, to let this, this kind of like this taboo topic out, out on, on the surface. I mean, it's almost, you know, to hear this now, right? It's almost impossible. For, it's almost impossible to remember this, in a way. I, I know, but back then, it was, it was stuff like the, the, the men's movement. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like this great movie. Right, the left out, you know, <laughs> third of the population, right? Right, and, and you know, you're right. I mean, the, 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 the whole gay culture is, is so much better incorporated into the mainstream culture, but back then it was still was kind of like this little yeah. exotic island. I agree. Weird I agree, it was horrible. Yeah. So I, first of all, thank you for, for, for speaking up, not only now, but then. Yeah. Um, and, you know, speaking on behalf of inclusivity. You know. Yeah. Jack, Jack and I were talking on the weekend. He's on a he's on a on a rant <laughs> about inclusivity, and he and Joseph have kind of made an agreement to say, you know, all teaching teams should have a person of color on the teaching team. And I'm teaching a course there, to your course there, and he said, you know, you're going to do it. And I said, well, you know, it's not going to be so easy. We well, must include. A gay personality teaching too. Yeah. Well, that's already there. A lot of that's there. Not much. Not as much as it ought to be, but it's there at least. It's almost non-existent. People call. I said, okay, we'll do it. So, you know. But yeah, this, this is the, this is moving outside our comfort zone. Like, will I just, will I just take, be hang out with the people? Will I just be with people that make me comfortable? Will I just be with the truths that make me comfortable? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's so many things that went through my mind as you spoke. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, first of all, I, I just landed on the, the fact that the word courage yeah. is a French word yes. that derives from the heart. Yeah. And um, I have reflected on moments in my life when I've been challenged in both life-threatening ways and other ways. Yeah. And I remember moments when I've been able to go into my heart yeah. and there's a clarity that arises yeah. about a situation yeah. that supports you Beautiful. when you have to face fear or feel fear. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I think about it, or, or I don't know if it's true for you, but I tend to have the clarity in my mind. I can see it. But then when it drops into the heart, it takes the it takes for me, it becomes sincerity. It's like a sincere willingness to see what's true, you know. And then, of course, I do. So the courage of heart is pretty easy to get. Courage of vulnerability. This is harder for us. This is the doorway to invulnerability. When I say invulnerability, I mean to contact with that aspect of our being that's not harmable. It's not what? Not harmable. You know, beyond harm. And when we know that, then we can go toward anything. Not, not full-heartedly, I don't mean that. I mean, we're willing to... Because, you know, this practice, at least in my experience, I probably so for yours, it's made me look at things I never wanted to see. Terrified me. And I'm not just talking about my own little neuroses, you know. Plenty of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for us in this direction um, for the courage to be vulnerable. But you mentioned now a couple of times a part of our being that is beyond harm. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Please? Yeah, well, you know, words get tricky here, of course, but you know, when we think of vulnerability, mostly when we think of vulnerability, we think of our capacity to be harmed. That's what we think about. But actually, that isn't vulnerability. That's our defense against vulnerability. That's not vulnerable yet. That's the, mm -mm, I don't think I'm going to do it quite yet. Vulnerability, if you actually feel yourself vulnerable, it's a pure openness. Pure openness. Like, completely receptive. Now, we could call that lots of things. You know, some people in some traditions would just say this is the receptivity of love that love has no gated communities, you know, that love, with love, everybody gets on the bus, right? That this is a pure receptivity of openness. Another way we might see it is, you know, in, 
And then we would talk about the dance of form and emptiness, right? When there's, you know, we tend to put those two in opposition to each other, form and emptiness. So we think of emptiness as something that will destroy form. And as long as we think of that, we have to keep creating form. We have to keep constructing a sense of me and somebodyness. Yeah? But when we begin to see, oh, form comes out of emptiness all the time. And then it returns to emptiness. Look into any form, as if you were looking at it under an electron microscope. What you will find is emptiness. You will find openness in everything. So when, we, when they're not in opposition to each other, then they become allies instead of antagonists. Yeah. They become lovers. Yeah. When we're with our lover, it's two, but it's not quite two. It's not exactly one, but it's not exactly two. So when I say, when I point to this thing, I'm pointing to something that's beyond our notion of our constructed self. The story that we have believed for so long, written out on resumes on websites, and people introduce you with it, and all that. The story we tell each other on Friday nights, when someone says, who are you? I so love being here. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, I'm glad you said, you know, this defensiveness because, um, you know, the past couple days after the Paris attacks on Facebook and other places, social media, you know, there was this initial response of, you know, pray for Paris, or mm -hmm. prayers are with you, and all this stuff. And then um, countering that, people said, well, you know, don't just pray for Paris. What about Lebanon? What about right. Egypt? Syria. What about Beirut places? a few weeks ago. Yeah just because they're not a bunch of white people in places where we can picture ourselves being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, pray for a world where these kind of conditions exist, where, you know, people resort to ideology and violence and hatred. And then countering that was, well, don't pray because prayer and religion is what got us into this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it occurred to me that all of that is based on this defensiveness, yeah. like this reactivity. Yeah. Um, fear, fearfulness, yeah. and and what, what do we do with that? And this energy that wants to come out. So how can you know? What do you recommend? How can we catch ourselves when we get into that defensive mode? We think we're being like you know rather high-minded, but it's really based in this yeah. fear and, and not being coarse. Yeah, it's um, well, it's there's not an easy one, two, three for that that I found, but you know, I I. I you know, I, you can still almost see it now. You can start to see, okay, here comes the cycle of spin that's going to come now. You know, we, we can watch it in the media and in our friends even. You know, people making French flags out of their faces on Facebook as if this has done something. And, um, you know, last week I was teaching at Spirit Rock and uh, my friend Joan Halifax, um, who's a fierce teacher, you know, she's a dear friend. And I invited her to speak and so she was teaching via Skype, and one of the students came up, and the student is doing service work in a prison. And she was saying, oh, gee, when I come home from the prison, I'm a little exhausted, and I think maybe I should do more practice. And, you know, it's, it's hard to be in a... It's so adversarial, and the system is so bad. And Joan just kind of sat there. And when the, <coughs> when the woman had finished speaking about her difficulty, Joan said, what are you going to do about it? And it was a great thing. What are you going to do about it? And she wasn't just, it wasn't just a call to action. It was like, it is impossible. <coughs> now, acknowledge that. What are you going to do about it? It's impossible. What are you going to do about it? You know, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree for eight weeks after he was enlightened, you know, the story goes, whatever that time frame was. And he didn't think he was going to teach, right? Because nobody would understand this. And then, one of the Brahmas came down, Deva, and said, you got to teach. You know, there are people with just a little dust in their eyes. And he said, basically said, no way, it's impossible. And Brahma Sapati said, no, there are people. Look. And he looked at his old Buddha eye, and there he could see, oh, there were a few people. 
named Tom who have just a little dust in their eyes, and I should teach like that. It was impossible. Basically, that's what the Brahmasapati was saying. It's what are you going to do about it? So it's impossible. What are you going to do about it? So for me, the work first always begins with what's happening in here? What part of me do I want to resist? What, what part of me do I not want to see? With my partner, I have a, um, an agreement these days that if she says something to me, which I ask myself the question, how am I interpreting what she's saying? That's the first thing I do. How am I interpreting what she's saying? I'm interpreting as critical and mean or something. And as soon as I ask the question, it brings it back on me. It's not about her. <clears throat> so for me, I have to first be willing to look and see how am I relating to all of this? What part of this lives in me? And it's not like... I have to understand something about that. That helps me to understand something about causes and conditions. You know, I, I helped to lead a retreat in Auschwitz in, in Birkenau in the very first year that we did it there. It's 20 years ago now. His Holiness came to, to Auschwitz and he said, I'm so glad I wasn't here. And here's the embodiment of compassion, right? I'm so glad I wasn't here. I'm terrified to think what I would have done. Because if those causes and conditions, he was the, the cause and condition to be a guard in Auschwitz, he would have done what other guards did in Auschwitz. So to see, to look at myself, to really be that fearless to look at myself and then to see what every part of me that wants to go away from this enables me then. It's like watching TV. It's like watching the news. Then it also lets me to see the compassionate side of myself. And it lets me respond from that. But first I have to be porous enough to let everything in. And, and you know, sometimes that's, there's a big wall of resistance that comes up in that. Or days of tears. Because I can't. Frank, I will put in that's the last question because we're no. running out of time. But no. uh, one of the things that uh, uh, the aftermath of the Paris events uh, has made me think, and uh, especially when it was found out that one of the persons that perpetrated this horrible thing came through the whip together with all the refugees coming through, uh, walking their way through Europe. And I began to think of uh, how many people that are just recently arrived in Europe uh, that have been victims of the same perpetrators are now going to be seen as potential enemies and how much suffering will be coming out of that one. There's one area that yeah, I mean, has really you know, made me cry. There's nobody in this room that has not been subject to that bias. in some fashion or another. Yeah. The spin will happen, and the blame will happen, and, and, and the fierceness and the courage that will be required to meet that. That's, what are we going to do about it? For me, that's courage. The courage that says, I will not turn away from this. I will not just buy the belief system that's being preached at me. I will... I will do all of this work and then I will stand against injustice. I teach in Italy every year and I'm so proud of the Italians who have been receiving all of these people off of boats coming from Northern Africa and the Middle East. And, you know, before all this was happening, before Merkel decided to open her doors, they were closed. And the Italians were saying, if you don't start opening your doors, we're going to give them citizenship here and then they're going to kick go all over here. <laughs> it was really brave of him, I thought. It's a shame they don't like gay marriage or civil rights. I agree. I agree. Don't stop. Stand for injustice. Stand for injustice. But first, what I have to find the true strength that will allow me to stand for injustice. Just my anger alone won't be enough. Ram Dass and I were at a rally here in San Francisco many years ago now. And we were backstage, and it was a rally against the wars in Central America where I had spent a lot of time and was a witness for peace and all these things. And I said, what are you going to say to them? He said, I'm going to tell them it's perfect, just as it is. 
I said, you can't tell them that, you know. I said, they're all here to protest. He said, no, it's perfect just as it is. It's the perfect unfolding of conditions. And until we change those conditions, until we stand against or shift those conditions, that will just keep playing out. Anyway, lots of love to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I hope to see you again. Hey folks, uh, a couple of announcements of the Remind you about the banner poll that will be passed around that supports uh, our rental of this uh, beautiful space as well as uh, our outreach activities in Larkin Street uh, yeah, and so forth. Um, and uh, we have uh, a host today. I'm the host. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so I'll be uh, with the dotted bowl, and also there are some. Uh, uh, some fruit, vegetables, and uh, crackers and things. We don't have water. So there is hot water. There, there is hot water. Declan. Uh, KNET2 is not here today, so he asked me to, to pass on that um, he is hosting for Thanksgiving for PPF members and for their guests. Uh, I think uh, there's a check, fire with the Yeah, there are fires out there if you want more information. And our speaker next week will be Pam Weiss. Oh, she's a good person. Okay, I guess at this point we do our dedication to Mary. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness with this wishes without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.